progress. Welcome, everyone. It's it's really wonderful to see so many familiar but also unfamiliar faces. Uh, so welcome to the distinctiveness session. So as many of you are probably aware, the SDR is, is running a series of what we call distinctiveness sessions. They are conceptualized by Michael Leiblein, and they're organized by Maka Moen, Philip Mayer-Doyle, uh, Richard Whittington, and myself. And uh, thank you, Heather, the past uh, division chair of SDR for joining us as well today. And uh, it's been my privilege to be able to organize the distinctiveness session, bringing together um, SDR and organizational behavior. So two of the largest uh, divisions of Academy of Management, if we put those, those two divisions together, they are jointly home to over just over 11,000 scholars. Uh, so it's a very, very large joint crowd uh, of folks that we are uh, that we're uh, speaking potentially to today. And so the way I see distinctiveness sessions is that they're mostly about trying to build interdisciplinary bridges and, and trying to foster probably a better understanding of what different uh, STR divisions have in common but also what are some of the distinct distinctive assumptions that we're making? Uh, what are some of the distinctive questions and topics that, uh, topics that scholars are somehow being housed or, or belonging to different, uh, different divisions are particularly interested in? I think that one of the distinguishing features of, of Academy is that many of us belong to multiple uh, divisions at the same time. So I think that this idea of of trying to better understand what ties us together and what are some of the distinctive uh, distinctive features is uh, is a very relevant uh, is a re very relevant question uh, question to ask, and I think that who better uh, to uh, to speak about those things than than four scholars that I think of as my as my personal role models in uh, in interdisciplinary research, and so uh, these are the four distinguished panelists that have agreed to join us today. Uh, Chris Berry from Indiana University. Uh, Chris is also an associate editor of Journal of Applied Psychology. Giada Di, uh, Di Stefano from Bocconi University. Giada is also associate editor at SMJ. Tanya Menon uh, from Ohio State University. Tanya is an AE at, uh, at Management Science. And last but not least, Lamar Pierce from Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, Lamar is the editor-in-chief of Organization Science. Uh, so again, the way we're going to organize this session is that in this order with Chris, Giada, then Tanya, and Lamar, I will ask uh, these panelists to share some of their thoughts on uh, on three, again, with uh, uh, very broad questions. Uh, what do you see as distinguishing and potentially often implicit assumptions in the areas of strategic management and organizational behavior? Do you think that it would be beneficial um, to the management and organizations community at large to have a common set of also behavioral assumptions, but should we share all the assumptions uh, or, or in a sense, uh, given that we do make uh, often distinct assumptions, at least what is the value in bringing that to the front, forefront and making them explicit? And finally, do you believe whether the future of our field as management scholars more broadly lies in interdisciplinary work, in particular for this session spanning the fields of SDR, so strategic management and, and organizational behavior. Just as a preview, uh, we have two upcoming <clears throat> distinctiveness dialogues. On April 5th, uh, it will be SDR and entrepreneurship. And on May 3rd, uh, it will be SDR and interna international business. <clears throat> right. So 
as a as as an str division we're really trying to create these uh these dialogues with each of the uh, or most of the of the other uh divisions within academy of management so without further delay i'm going to give it over to uh to chris uh and then the way we're going to run it is that we'll let some of the panelists speak in turn um Please don't hesitate to put your questions in the chat. I will try to aggregate them together, try to summarize them if there is need for that. But at the end, uh, at the end, we should have uh, about 30 minutes, 25 minutes for a general uh, discussion, uh, Q and A's, and so on and so forth. So please keep your uh, your questions also until the end, and then we can open up to uh, to a more general discussion. Thank you, and again, thank you all for joining uh, joining us today. All right. Yeah. Th thanks, Tomas. Um, I'm going to try sharing my screen here. Everyone see the slides? Yeah. Great. Okay. So I am Chris Berry. Hi, everyone. Um, when Tomas asked me to join this session, I warned him that I know very little about the field of strategic management. So if, you know, the, the little I do know comes from a lot of job talks and a handful of research presentations from my strategy colleagues over the years. So if I say anything today about strategic management, please take it with a grain of salt. I know a lot more about my field of OB. So I'm gonna talk in my little presentation here more about OB, uh, what we focus on, what are some norms and assumptions, some things that I think make us distinctive. And then, at the end, just a little bit about some possible areas of connection between OB and strategy. Now, I've got up on the slide here that I'm gonna give you an OBHR scholar's perspective. That's because I'm a professor of organizational behavior and human resource management or HR. So I'm also gonna talk just really quickly about where HR fits in here and how it may show some ways or highlight some ways that strategy and OB might find some areas of connection. Now, because I'm going first, I thought I should briefly define what I mean by OB. So it stands for organizational behavior. It's a field devoted to understanding, explaining, and ultimately improving the attitudes, behaviors, and well-being of individuals and groups and organizations. And I've got up on the slide here just a handful of example topics. It's a big field, so of course this isn't exhaustive, uh, but should give you a feel for the types of topics we study. So for example, we study employee attitudes like job satisfaction, commitment to the organization. We study employees' job performance, what it is, what influences it, what predicts it. Uh, leadership, what are the most effective leadership styles or behaviors, what are the least effective, what motivates employees, what doesn't, and so on. I won't go through the whole list. Talk a little bit about our roots. So OB's mother field is psychology, in particular social psychology, uh, personality, and industrial organizational psychology. And I think in a lot of ways, you could think of OB as the application of psychological science to the workplace. So for example, the flagship journal in our field that is focused just on publishing OB and HR topics is called the Journal of Applied Psychology. And we're also an old field. So psychology, that field has been around since for about 150 years. OB in some form has been around for about 100 years. 
So for example, Journal of Applied Psychology was founded back in 1917. Coming from psychology, I think has also resulted in a number of assumptions and norms in our field. And of course, there are more than are on the slide here, but these are just some noteworthy ones um, and some things that I think maybe make us distinctive. So psychology is very much focused on understanding individual people and their social interactions. And so this is reflected in OB in our study, our focus on individual employees or groups and teams of employees. And an underlying assumption of this focus on individual employees is that the people make the place. That is, employees, people are a driving force of organizations, so there's value in understanding and improving their attitudes, behaviors, and well-being. And then I also think that coming from psychology has influenced the research methods that we use. So for example, like in the field of social psychology, experiments are quite common in our field. Um, like in the fields of personality and industrial organizational psychology, correlational field studies using employees as participants and then focused on quantifying relationships between variables for those employees. Those are very common. And then meta-analyses are also very common in our field. In fact, meta-analysis was originally in large part created and then developed by OB scholars starting in the 1970s. And then in our field, surveys are ubiquitous. Um, I hardly ever see an OB study that doesn't include a survey of some kind. So the idea is that we're always trying to study these abstract psychological constructs like employees' job satisfaction or their personality. And so we often use surveys with items designed to measure those abstract psychological constructs. Another important point about OB is that it's part of the broader field of organizational behavior and human resource management or OBHR. And at a really broad level, I think you can break down the topics in OB and HR into micro and macro topics. Micro topics are topics that are focused on individuals in organizations or maybe groups of individuals. So the individuals are typically the unit of analysis. Macro topics are focused more on uh, the organizations themselves. So the organizations are the units of analysis. So these distinctions that I'm gonna show here, they're much fuzzier than are gonna be implied by the neat clean cells in this table, but at a really rough level, I would say micro OB is focused most on understanding and managing people once they're in the organization. So things like what drives their attitudes, um, what motivates them, what leadership behaviors are the most effective. Micro HR focuses more on bringing people into the organization. So things like what are the most effective recruiting strategies, how to make decisions about which employees to hire, how to train employees. And so it's micro in that it's focused on making decisions, for example, about which individual employees to hire. Now, in the field of HR, there's also a field um, focused on macro topics. It's called strategic human resource management. And it focuses on differences between organizations in HR practices and whether those differences matter. So for example, do organizations that have better 
HR practices, do they perform better? Now, for years, I taught a PhD intro to OB seminar. And on like the first day, I would show students something along the lines of the information on this slide to sort of provide some context for where OB fits into the broader field of OBHR. And the first question I would get from students, and probably a lot of you are thinking it too, is what about macro OB? And I would tell students, there is not really a field of macro OB. Now that doesn't mean that there's never been anyone who's done a study on maybe what I'd call macro OB, but I don't think that there's a coherent field focused on studying OB topics with a macro lens using organizations as the unit of analysis, like there is a, a macro HR field focused on studying HR topics using organizations as the unit of analysis. So when Tomas asked us panelists, do we see opportunities for interdisciplinary work between OB and strategy, this cell here with the question mark, that's the first thing that I thought of. So for example, could strategy scholars contribute to something along the lines of an OB analog to strategic HR? And these are just some half-baked quick ideas I had about the sorts of topics that could be pursued. So for example, I think that an OB, an implicit assumption, has often been that improved employee attitudes, behaviors, well-being will all translate into value for the organization. So it's not just good for the employees, it's good for the organization too. But I don't think a lot of work has explicitly tested that implicit assumption. Like, do organizations with managers who are better leaders or who have a more motivated or satisfied workforce, do they perform better? Now, I think that research would be really difficult to do because you would need good measures of things like organization-level leadership or organization-level motivation, et cetera. But I think it's an example of a topic where strategy scholars or a strategy lens could provide value to the study of OB topics. Here's a different idea. Um, this is an idea for maybe a way that OB scholars could contribute value to the study of a strategy topic. Specifically, how do characteristics of top management team members affect what organizations do? So top management team members, they're people in organizations, and OB specializes in studying people in organizations. So for example, one of my colleagues here at Kelly, um, MK Chin, is a strategy scholar who does fascinating work on top management team members' political ideology. So are there other characteristics that matter and that we should measure? Now, that work, my guess is it's probably already being done in your field, but it's just an example of maybe a topic where OB scholars could provide some value to the study of a strategy topic. So those were just some half-baked ideas for interdisciplinary opportunities. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing what my fellow panelists have to say about strategy and OB and uh, whether they see opportunities for interdisciplinary work. So thank you. Thank you, Chris. This was fascinating. And thank you for the for the presentations. And to all the participants, again, please don't hesitate to put your uh put some of the questions either to a particular uh particular panelist or more overarching uh, questions in the in the chat as we go on. And now I'll turn it over to Jada. Thank you, Jada. Thank you.
Thanks so much. Um, okay, so I'm going to tackle this uh, um, topic in a completely different way compared to what we heard from Chris, in the sense that I read the invitation uh, to, to be a panelist on um, today as a completely different um, exercise in the sense of thinking more about my experience as a scholar uh, publishing uh, potentially at the intersection between different fields, one of which uh, could be that of uh, OB. So let's say that uh, I'm going to um, face this uh, in some sort of existentialist way in which I'm going to wonder what it means to be a scholar of strategy and what it means actually to be a scholar of strategy who works uh, at the intersection. To, to talk a little bit about this, I'm going to share my history, which I think provides uh, some background uh, about what I'm going to talk about. So this is, uh, uh, now without animations, you see Tomas' face all over the slide, we should not be there. Okay, so this is a little bit of history of, um, um, of my journey in academia. So I started with my dissertation that was really on social norms, uh, and IPRs and their effect uh, on uh, affecting knowledge sharing. So you can see already here in the keywords uh, that I was uh, a little bit at the intersection between OT with this idea of social norms, team with the idea of IPRs, and potentially strategy in thinking about specifically um, knowledge sharing that could have uh, affected the competitive advantage of organizations. In most places I went to when I was on the market, I did the job market as a strategy candidate, but there was one department in which I did it as an operations candidate and one department in which I did it as a meso-OB candidate, which was not in the matrix, but they told me that here, I had no idea what that was, but they told me it was a thing and they decided that I could have classified as a meso-OB person. Um, however, I started as an assistant professor in strategy, uh, in a strategy department. I was hired actually to teach entrepreneurship, so I was not really completely fitting with this idea of, um, of strategy. Back then, I was identifying myself as a team scholar, I would say, so technology and innovation. Over time, I grew fonder and fonder of uh, um, more mainstream strategies, so with the growing involvement with with STR, SMS, my job market paper was actually published on SMJ, and, uh, um, and I've been doing some work. I was doing some work on dynamic capabilities as a field, which I think helped uh, put uh, um, make people put me in the strategy domain because of this particular topic. However, if you look at how the topics I was researching at the time, you will see that they are not your traditional strategy topics. So I was interested in things like reflection, more OB, I would say, narratives, more OT, status, OT, organizational climate, OB. So clearly going in different directions. However, if you think about, if I think back about what I was doing in the different papers, there was always a strategy spin. So reflection, I was looking at the effect on performance. Narratives aimed at sustaining strategic change in organizations. Uh, status to look at how organizations react to status shocks. Organizational climate as a way for firms to prevent the leakage of proprietary knowledge. So there was always this idea of strategic action, despite the topics were somehow reminiscent of topics in OB and OT. I got tenure. I moved to a, a department that is a broader a management and technology department where I only teach strategy now. So I succeeded in being identified as strategy scholar. I became an AE at SMJ and I thought I was done. Boom, I'm a strategy scholar and now everyone understands that. Except that 
In the space of a month, I received two invitations, and this somehow put me to question a little bit my identity. The first came from Filippo Vezel a Lugano, who asked me whether I wanted to join on this uh, volume of advances in strategic management that we are now putting together, where we talk about research at the intersection between strategy and OT. And then came Tomash with this invitation to talk about research at the intersection between strategy and OB. And so you can now make sense of why I thought of this as more of an existential question in the sense of who am I really? And exactly where do I sit if people see me at the intersection of all these different things? So in trying to make sense of my identity and who I am and what I do, um, I think I kind of think of myself as a strategy scholar, hopefully, who apparently loves uh, all these intersections. Uh, and I think this comes from the way in which I like to do research. So a lot of you, um, of us who actually see ourselves as uh, scholars at the intersection, I think uh, share this common interest uh, in uh, thinking about phenomena and wanting to unpack what these phenomena are about. Sometimes this requires you to use lenses, tools that come from different fields. And as a result, people will see different aspects of your research interests and classify you in different buckets, depending on what they put more attention on. So why am I at the intersection with OB? I think part of it is the methods, as Chris was pointing at. I mostly do research using experiments. This is common practice nowadays in strategy, but back when I was on the market, uh, this was considered to be more of an OB method. So I got the question, do you do OB? Um, part of it is also related to the level of analysis. We were talking about this micro aspect. So I'm in strategy. I do study organizations, but then I look at the individuals inside organizations. And my point of view is always the individual point of view. And as such, this again puts me in this bucket of are you strategy for a strategy scholar, I would say they always question a little bit this identity. However, I do think of myself as a strategy scholar because strategy is the community with which I identified. The reason I use these methods is to understand the strategic behavior of firms. The way in which I look at these topics is also very much based on these strategic interactions. So I thought of giving you an example based on a recent paper that I'm working on currently, where we basically look at a topic that has been looked at through different lenses to somehow tell you a little bit how people from different fields can examine the same research question. So in this paper, what we're basically doing, and I'm going to squeeze my picture here so you can read, is to try and understand how you can foster collaboration and learning in teams where you're putting together employees with different skill levels. So think about putting together stars and lemons, if you want. And the idea is, how can we make them collaborate and learn from one another? There has been research in many different fields covering why this, this uh, which on paper is a very good idea, in practice, it is not. So if you look at the examples that I have here, we start from an AMJ published in 2006 that basically says that if you do this and mix people with different skills in teams, what will end up happening is that they will actually collaborate less compared to more homogeneous teams. This is more of an OB paper. And in fact, what it mostly emphasizes is why does this happen? And so the authors leverage on theories of power and dependence to explain the mechanisms at the group level that explain this outcome. And what they're interested in is understanding how team members can somehow act potentially on these mechanisms. 
Then there is the second paper, Carel et al., which was published on Econometrica. And in this case, you again have an experiment with freshmen at the Air Force Academy. And what they're basically looking at is they want to document the effect. And what they find is that, you know, you put people with mixed levels together, what will end up happening is endogenous sorting. So you will have the good ones uh, that group with the other good ones and we leave the less skilled behind. Same kind of finding, completely different framing. And in this case, the interest is more in the policy implications of this endogenous sorting. In this working paper that I'm working on with Elena Novelli at base and Martin Etu, who's currently a postdoc at Rotman, we basically look at a way which managers in organization can counteract this effect. So you see the strategy that comes into place now. It's in the hands of manager to potentially change these dynamics in teams. And we actually uh, implement an intervention. So once again, it's again an experiment in the field in which we implement an, an intervention in an organization and try to see whether with this intervention we can somehow reduce a little bit this effect and make sure that actually less skilled members are left behind less. And so you see the same topic using three different lenses resulting in three different papers that are, I think, more clearly positioned in different fields. So if you want to briefly take some things away from what I just shared, I think, first of all, that in general, working at the intersection it's somehow the natural product of working on some specific topics, in particular, if you do question-driven research. This has pros and cons. And so for the junior people in the audience, there are advantages in doing this. You, I think it's more interesting, it's fun, maybe you have a broader impact um, because you can speak to more people. But however, the problem is that you need to go to the point where you are able to speak with more people. And this is not so easy. So it may take more time, generate stronger pushback. Imagine you get referees from different fields who are going to look at the same uh, topic that you investigate with very different approaches. And also you can threaten your identity in the sense that once again, they will ask you, what are your strategy? Um, I, we don't have time, so I'm not going to cover this, but like uh, the example that I like to give is this paper who took me 11 years to get to publication because we were putting together a team of people that had very different interests that were converging on the same topic, but the paper we wanted to write was a very generalist one. And so I think this was part of the reasons why, uh, together with many others, that somehow the paper was slowed down in the process. What I believe is also crucial is the, the idea of forming a strong identity. So you need to find your community so that independently of what uh, some people may think about your identity, you have a, a number of people you can talk to that you can actually have a conversation with. My conversations happen only within the strategy domain. However, when I go and present some of my staff at conferences, and I remember presenting this paper for the very first time in an audience of 30 people, I think Tomas was there actually, and one of the members of the audience said, oh, but why are you asking us? You should knock on the doors of your OB colleagues because this is who this paper is really talking to. And to this, of course, you push back because it's like, uh, since you want to be positioned in the field, you have to explain why you think this could also be a strategy paper. But then my recommendation ultimately is to go and knock on those doors because there's actually a lot of things that you can learn by talking to them. Thank you. Thank you, Jella, and uh, thank you so much for also sharing some of the some of the personal personal journey. Uh, so now we'll uh, we'll take. Uh, we'll turn it over to Tanya. Thank you, Tanya. You're muted. Sorry. 
I have to be the idiot in every Zoom call who does that. So um, sorry about that. Um, so I would, uh, I really loved both of the prior presentations. Um, I, uh, especially Tomas, uh, uh, the Chris's introduction, and um, I would say I also took the same perspective as Giada, which is kind of really sharing my journey. Um, so I'm also interested in really thinking about these points of intersection. And I always find this interesting because um, the strategy colleague I often talk to uh, most is, is Michael Leibline. And when he shared this invitation to, with me, I was kind of trying to understand, are you interested in points of commonality? But the whole session is called distinctiveness. Um, and, and it sounds like you are focused in your research and your papers on showing what is very unique and distinct about strategy. And that's something right there that we don't see as much in OB, kind of seeing and saying OB has these distinct canonical questions, such as strategy does. And um, we, we let every flower bloom. And that is what Pfeffer has said without intending it as a compliment. He says, we are low paradigm and maybe we should have some of these canonical questions, shared assumptions, shared topics in the way that strategy or economics has. Um, and so I was also kind of struggling as I, as I looked at this because I find it hard to generalize about OB, which is my field, because it is so diverse with all the flowers blooming. And like Chris, I don't feel very confident in saying these are the assumptions of strategy. But I was trying to look through um, the, the and kind of see where I saw some shared focus. Um, I, like Giada, have had um, life on the intersection, my undergraduate was in sociology and my PhD was much more in psychology. I have um, the privilege of working with so many different strategy and macro scholars. So that has been a wonderful part of my career. Um, and so the shared focus that I see in our field is we're, we're both interested in decision-making, but individuals and groups, particularly under uncertainty um, and with respect to interdependent action. Um, and so in OB, that tends to be negotiations, teams, cross-cultural research, which was where I first started, was really on when we behave in more independent ways, in more interdependent ways. And so this focus on interdependent action is really what uh, Leibline, Royer, and Zenger talk about as what makes a question very distinctively strategic. But I think we share that assumption in, in OB. Um, and then also, what is the agency of leaders in this context? Do leaders have any power to actually um, determine action? And Jeff Pfeffer um, has famously written his, his article on managers as, as involved with symbolic action rather than really substantive action, um, saying that most things are determined by your resources, your industry. Um, and so it's just symbolism, which is what leaders are doing. Now, when I look at some of the general points of difference and in, in thinking about what is um, what is distinctive about OB versus uh, strategy, I think we have to go beyond just simple micro and macro differences in individual behavior versus firm behavior. I think that that is a red herring because I've seen both of those. A lot of strategy people, of course, doing individual decision-making work that um, that could fit in, in, in any micro uh, context. So one is, I think, the focus on the dependent variables. And st strategy has a, at least it seems to me from the outside, a focus on strategic advantage as kind of its primary uh, dependent variable. And 
OB has some broader dependent variables. And so Barry Staw, this was a famous article that was uh, assigned to maybe many of you when you took your first year OB classes. And he says, well, we focus in OB on uh, you know, performance. We focus on satisfaction. We focus on turnover. We focus on absenteeism. And that set of four variables have been the traditional variables. And, and you'll see it in HR as well. Um, but he said there's also a lot richer variables in OB. Um, it's creativity, dissent, stress, for example. And that's what he said in 94. And, and many of these don't have any direct links to performance. And even since then, the, the, the range of our dependent variables has, has only grown. Um, the, the other thing that I think is interesting is kind of how we think about decision processes. And so with decision processes, one of the, one of the models we, we like to talk about this attitude model, which is the ABCs of attitudes are affect, behavior, and cognition. And I think both of us in strategy and OB, we, we've been strongly influenced by the decision theory work of Kahneman and Tversky. So a lot of this is cognitive biases, cognitive errors. Um, and in strategy, I see a lot of focus on cognition, but less on affect um, and, and emotion. And an exception of that is um, the work of Professor Hui in INSEAD, right? So how does emotion also affect our decision-making? So I see maybe it's more emergent in, in, in the field, uh, whereas OB, will uh, we love to talk about affect and, and feelings and emotion. The other side that I think is uh, kind of where OB is, is, is kind of less focused and has been criticized sometimes is, you know, a lot of OB, especially group behavior, um, there was a famous article that was written by Richard Moreland, where he said, you know, we are sitting here focusing so much on attitudes and, and cognitions, but not enough on behavior because behavioral variables are harder to capture. And so I think we have, because our variables sometimes aren't as so cleanly focused on performance and behavior, we kind of get lost in the attitudes and perceptions um, rather than getting those behavioral outcomes in, and maybe you've seen some of that in your reviews uh, that people complain about. Um, the other, the other distinction I think is uh, with respect to the concept. So those were about decision making. Um, with respect to interdependence, I think we think about interdependence in a different way. For organizational behavior, it is more interpersonal interdependence. How people are interdependent on teams and negotiations, um, and and strategy has that that. Know, kind of interdependence in a social sense, but there's less focus in OB on interdependence across time. Uh, and in strategy, as in the Liveline et al. article, there's much more focus on it. if I say this and do this, how is it going to affect things down the line? Um, and I think we are, are less um, adept at that. So let me give you some of my attempts to, like Giada did, kind of be at this boundary. And so my dissertation was very clearly an attempt to, to think about how this boundary works. And so my question in my dissertation was how do we value knowledge in, uh, the, in the organization versus between outsider information, knowledge of consultants, knowledge of competitors. And I was particularly focused on the knowledge of competitors. And what was interesting to me is do, do managers actually value external knowledge more than internal knowledge? And you know, in when I was in Chicago, University of Chicago, the the way OB was often dismissed was they said people make decisions. They, I don't care if you're in an organization or out of the organization. It's human beings. It's exactly the same kind of decision. So what what is OB actually contributing beyond what psychology already does? And so there were real questions, threats to what makes OB distinctive. Um, and so this was a, a kind of research that I did to to get beyond that. So. 
in psychology, there's a very clear answer to how knowledge should be valued, which is in-group bias, right? So if I'm in the organization, I should favor the knowledge of insiders. These are people, there's a huge research on in-group bias, very little on out-group bias. Yet when you go into organizations, people are always complaining, nobody's hearing my ideas. And they're sitting there when a consultant comes in, when the competitor does it, they're all over it. And on top of that, it should be less costly to capture the knowledge that's right in front of you. And so I wanted to understand what is it about being in an organization in a hierarchy that is producing this kind of a bias, a reversal of what is so commonly understood as a, a psychological truth. And so my deepened variables in the dissertation were the, how much are you willing to pay for this idea? And I would um, kind of manipulate without the participants knowing whether the idea came from an in-group member or an out-group member. Um, and do you think the idea is good or not? And we, of course, did find, especially when people were feeling threatened um, uh, with the messenger of the knowledge, that the external knowledge was actually overvalued as compared to the internal knowledge. And the, the cognitive reasons that we looked at, we looked at both cognitive and motivational processes, was this knowledge was available, but availability did not make it better, easier for people. It kind of reduced the scarcity effect. It made it less valuable. We could see the errors more. And then we looked at the motivational reasons. And a lot of my work was focused on this motivational side, which is that we have incentives to learn from the outsiders, but we learn from an insider. We are involved with promotion processes, et cetera, status, emotions, threats, envy comes in, and there were some motivational problems here. And so the implications of this research was we use, both fields are using this word competition, but it means very different things, internal competition in the hierarchy versus external competition. And so in a, in a sense, threat was increasing the knowledge valuation across the boundary. The more I'm threatened by the competitor, the more I'm likely to value that knowledge, but it was reducing it within the boundary. I was very interested in these micro emotions, okay, such as threat and envy that could have real macro consequences, big consequences for how we're making investments in the firm, transferring knowledge, coordinating with others, implementing and cooperating with, with people. And I was, I was finding a, as an implication for strategy, we end up focusing narrowly on competing advantage away from other people versus building up our own homegrown sources of competitive advantage. And, and so how come we are spending and investing money on things that are harder for us to access and learn from versus something that's easily available, readily available, and that we could probably uh, capture more value from much more easily. Um, so, so this was different from what psychology found. And, and um, it's, it's kind of, there's a new paper in, 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 so, uh, in strategy right now, which is really about how markets propagate valuation biases by uh, Shane Levine and Ed Zajac. But we are also seeing how hierarchies are gonna create other types of biases. So what are the biases in and out? So this is some topics here. You can see competitive interdependence. You can see decision-making types of topics. You can see some processes here, personality, beliefs, values, the org structure, practices that might increase uh, competitive group behavior, incentives, um, and, and that environment is competitive or not that are going to affect decision making. And so I was really concerned as a, with a DVS, with advantage, but also really with feelings. How did people feel? Are they feeling threatened? Are they feeling unheard at work? Um, and, and the other question, and I'll, I'll give a few, I'll do the next few a little bit shorter, but um, strategies focused on sustainable advantage and psychology, particularly social psychology is really focused on really fleeting psychologies. And do those fleeting psychologies really matter? 
And so the other set of papers that I have really focused on some of these very fleeting psychologies that can really affect how we make a decision. So we said before, do leaders matter? Or are they just simply constrained by their structures? Well, one thing we know from psychology is that if we feel agency and power in our environment, okay, we should act in a different way. And this is Adam Golinski's research. And there's a lot of psychological research, very criticized, by the way, on priming methodologies. Can I make you feel powerful or not powerful? How does that affect your behavior in the environment. And so some of my work with uh, Cindy Wang, Jennifer Whitson, and various uh, colleagues um, is that how when I feel in control or out of control, particularly when I feel out of control, I'm going to engage in superstitious thinking. And our dependent variables are probably very uninteresting to strategy people. You more, are you more likely to uh, believe in horoscopes? Are you likely to believe in conspiracy theories? And we find when you're lacking control, you are indeed engaging in a lot of these irrational thought processes because you need to meet other psychological needs like finding order and stability. And what this kind of lets me think about is maybe kind of having these feelings of control or power, maybe does that lead to more ambitious strategy making? How do I see risk in the world? How do I understand other people's behavior? Am I able to take their perspective in an intelligent strategic way, or am I engaging in really poor perspective taking based on, on, on either stereotypes or superstition? And, and these fleeting feelings can really affect the way the leaders are framing their decisions. And so there's lots of research, great uh, uh, places where you can start to look and see these frames in psychology. Um, one example is construal level theory, Trope and Lieberman's work, which is, are you framing things at a, at, a, at a big picture level or really at a lower level of how do I get this done? Um, we have regulatory focus, which is, am I looking uh, to, to, to see how I uh, it wins or avoiding losses, okay? And then the last piece where I kind of worked at the intersection was with my colleague, um, Ned Smith, um, who, who many of you know. Um, and one of the things that we did in a number of papers was really think about how these fleeting feelings and emotions actually affect the way we are able to uh, select into a structure, create the structure that is around us. Structure matters. It is a constraint, but how you see that structure matters too. And the fleeting emotions that we were talking about, again, were threat. So if we manipulate threat, we put people in situations where they're feeling nervous, feeling under threat, and we interact that with their actual um, status, okay? Are they, are they rich or poor, high or low socioeconomic status? Our dependent variables was the cognition of the network and people's cognitions of their networks, depending on these manipulations, changed whether they saw their networks as large, broad, um, or very small and constrained. Okay, and so our deep and variable never got to performance or actually mobilization or anything like that. But we had a lot of implications there that we were interested in in further looking at, which is we have a potential structure, but your emotions and cognitions affect the way that you actually realize that structure, what you see and how you use it, how we imagine our interdependence with others. We were very interested in uh, Podolny's Matthew effect. What are the mechanisms by which the rich get richer? How do we increase 
inequality and in strategy, of course, lots of ideas of inequality, how, how uh, of inequality at the level of the industry, the, 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 the lower player versus the dominant players. But we were really interested in societal inequality as well, which is something I see much more in OB versus uh, strategy, which is, again, an assumption I hope I hope is I, I don't know if it's accurate, but it's a place where I think um, a lot of a lot of um, synergy could happen. So psychology is affecting the structure we're building, we're creating, we're using. And structure, in turn, is affecting our psychology, our psychological states, our outcomes. And so to conclude, here are, here are some of my thoughts on uh, Tomas's three questions. This, I've already talked a lot about where I see some points of intersection and some distinctiveness. Um, should we share assumptions? Well, maybe not necessarily. I think I'm much more like the OB scholar that Jeff Pfeffer, my former advisor, doesn't like, who's kind of let, let people have their different assumptions. But I think we should know how to communicate. I've seen too many strategy departments and organizational departments who don't, just don't like talking to each other and don't know how. Um, the future of the field. I think there's potentially fruitful collaborations. I'm always hopeful for more, but I see our world continues towards specialization and we'll always have a few boundary spanners like um, us weird people in the room who will try our best to, to kind of build these bridges. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you so much. All right, we'll turn it over to Lamar now. Thanks, Lamar. All right, great. Thanks. Uh, one of the uh, one of the joys of going last, of course, is that oftentimes all the points you're going to make get taken. So I was sort of here in the background trying to get ChatGPT to put together a new talk for me, um, but ultimately uh, I decided I'd just go with what I had. So um, so I echo a lot of what's been said here. But you know, my my interpretation of this question, the way I approach it, is I think very very similar to Jada's, uh, and in fact, you know, my my story is actually similar to hers in a lot of ways only with, uh, with fewer job talks and fewer job offers as well. Um, I have an interesting background. I have a really strange background. And, and part of that as well is this idea of being at the intersection of, of strategy and OB and a number of other fields uh, in a way that I think defies categories. And you know, I think as our sociologist friends have, have shown us pretty con consistently is that you know, we as humans naturally, uh, cognitively like to put things into categories. And it's often very difficult for us uh, when people don't fit into categories. Um, and so, you know, for me, this was always such a struggle early on because uh, I didn't look like a strategy person and I didn't really look like an OB person. And so in some sense, you know, people might have been happy, happy if another department hired me. Uh, but, you know, they're a little reluctant to do it themselves. Uh, I actually did a little exercise here just to kind of see where I do fit. And I looked at my publication records. And actually, um, of all the fields, I have more publications in OB psych than I do in strategy. Um, now, one of the reasons I ended up here at WashU is, as Tanya had mentioned, is uh, not about me, but about Todd Zanger, which is Todd Zanger was basically the, I think of him as the founder of our department and really was the person who brought me in and hired me. Uh, Todd was, I think, you know, years before, um, you know, me Ed, was basically somebody who came out of effectively out of OB, but was a strategy person. And, you know, and I think much like me or, you know, some others who span boundaries, uh, you know, Todd couldn't get a job either. Uh, and so he ended up here and there's, you know, it's not a sort of a random event that uh, our department has hired a lot of people like this, I think. And I think it's built a different niche. And of course, you know, it's not a random event that Todd's worked with Tomash or, you know, a number of other people 
uh, here is because, you know, there is a huge value and there has historically been an underrepresented value of this kind of um, cross-sectionality. And so, you know, how do I think about this? Um, so I think that, so I think of strategy much like uh, Michael Porter's uh, What is Strategy, uh, you know, article in HBR. And, you know, maybe this is um, not academic enough. But when I think of strategy, I immediately think of that wonderful little, you know, bubbles and connectors uh, chart that basically talks about the complementarity of activities uh, and why complementarities of activities are so important. Um, and if you look like at that article, or if you think about strategy that way, you notice that if you're studying strategy or considering strategy, that everything that's going on in those individual bubbles is important. And it's important for us to understand. Um, for me, what that involved was, even though I came out of, you know, primarily in economics training, uh, was going inside those bubbles and trying to understand them all. So I wanted to understand operations. I wanted to understand psychology. I wanted to understand, you know, non-psychology parts of organizational behavior, um, all sorts of different types, because ultimately, you know, what, what for me has been really interesting is this idea of how do all these pieces fit together? And so, you know, when I think of strategy, what I'm constantly thinking of, and I think this is probably why I'm in a strategy department, um, is even if I'm not studying firm level performance on the left hand side, which uh, certainly was, you know, absolutely dominant when when I came out of graduate school. Even if I'm not studying that, I'm constantly thinking about how something that I study about people, or something that Jada studies about people, or anybody else, or Tomash, um, how that ultimately rolls up to firm performance, how it interacts with other elements of what the firm is doing. For example, what technology is is happening? What are the means of production? Um, you know, what is sort of the product placement, a whole number of elements. How does that one element of what is being studied in the paper ultimately interact with everything and ultimately sort of aggregate up uh, to uh, what we think of as firm performance? Um, and that's kind of the way I think about it. You know, obviously, OB has been much more focused, uh, and I think sort of Chris laid this out, much more focused on sort of uh, micro uh, mechanisms and also team mechanisms. And I think that's been, a, you know, a huge strength. Uh, and I'll note that, you know, as somebody who comes from uh, an economics training, um, I've always found it very, I shouldn't say easy, but very intuitive or natural to, to bounce between psychology and economics. Um, obviously, psychology and economics are very, very different in a lot of ways. Uh, but one of the things that I think makes them far easier uh, for me to bounce between rather than, say, sociology, is the primitives are actually pretty similar. Uh, which is, you know, both fields fundamentally, you know, and this is the case about economics, both, both fields fundamentally start with people. And they start with people thinking and then doing. And so there is kind of that common idea model as opposed to sociology, which might, you know, start with a primitive of social forces. So I think there's a natural way for, for these fields to work together. Um, and I think, you know, certainly in the field of economics and psychology, you've seen these intersections in terms of uh, behavioral economics. So I think it's a very fruitful thing for, for us to do. Um, so I, th I think it's a lot less, the differences are a lot less about the assumptions that we make. And I think it's a lot more about the focus. I think as, as Chris also detailed, a lot more about the methods uh, and a lot more about the units of analysis. And that has traditionally been uh, sort of the divide. But I think that, you know, there's so much boundary spanning going on now. I think, you know, uh, folks who have done this in the last um, you know, number of years. Uh, I mean, I remember when Tomash came on the job market, how excited I was to see his his research, uh, because I thought like, 
this is what I would like our field to be moving more towards, which is understanding how do we take strategic questions and boil them down to org design uh, and you know to individual level decision making. So I think there's a lot more of that. I think in the field of strategy, some of this has come across uh, you know in the formation of uh, this strategic human capital group. Um, but you know that group has I think focused on a couple things that that I would I think wanted to expand a bit more. Uh, that group has oftentimes been sort of at more at the intersection of uh, strategy and HR, uh, as opposed to the intersection of strategy and OB. Uh, and so, you know, for me, I think I've always felt like a little bit of an outsider because I think that there was a lot less OB in there than I would have liked. I think, the, you know, the other thing that like strategic human capital could do, I think, is is expand what its focus is in terms of outcomes. So, you know, in the field of strategy and, and strategic human capital, a lot of times, you know, the primary question of interest, you know, goes back to Gary Becker, you know, this idea of how do we think about who captures value? And how that value gets divided up, you know. And I've always been someone who who thinks that um, if you want to understand the value of labor or labor performance, uh, that it's far more important to think about productivity than it is about wages. And so, you know, I think that field, particularly strategic human capital, I think could um, shift its focus a little bit to to not only studying sort of how uh, value gets divided, but really much more of a hev heavy focus about how much value is created, uh, because that's really what firms care about. They care about, you know, how much value is created um, rather than how do we divide it up? They'd much rather, you know, have a smaller share of a much larger pie than they would have, you know, a larger share of a smaller pie. And usually what, you know, when I talk to firms, what I tell them is I say, look, like the way to cut your labor costs is not to cut your wages. It's to think about how do we improve motivation, performance, uh, a number of elements along those lines. Okay, so I am running out of time here. So I wanna talk a few things about what I would love to see. Um, I think the most important thing is, is having these types of conversations. And I think, you know, Jada laid this out nicely, which is, you know, go talk to your OB, uh, you know, colleagues could be viewed in a couple of different ways, right? It can be viewed as like, why are you studying this? Just go ask them, which I think, you know, is sort of how, how she was, uh, it was presented to her originally. And then there's the way we should be doing it, which is, of course, what she and many others have done, which is this idea of how do we go and understand what they're doing and integrate it into our work? So what would be kind of the key things that we might think about with this? Well, you know, I'd love for strategy uh, to think a lot more about micro mechanisms um, to really understand, you know, what causes people uh, to make choices and how those choices emerge. Um, I think Tanya had some really good points uh, about you know, it not just simply being about cognition, but also about affect. Uh, humans are complicated beings. Um, and, you know, I think the more we think about them in terms of uh, what a policy will do to real behavior rather than what a policy would do to behavior in our ideally mo idealized model of, of what humans are, um, I think we will get sort of a better idea of sort of uh, why some firms perform better than others. Um, what I love from uh, from micro OB folks, particularly, and I'm I'm speaking mostly about micro and meso here, because you know I think as Chris pointed out, OB is is an enormous field, uh, and I'm learning this at Org Science. Um, what I like for them to do is to think a lot more about you know when they do a paper, when they write a paper. One thing that I often feel is missing at the end of the paper is, okay, you know you've shown me some really important uh, mechanism, or you've shown me how some policy affects 
you know, human well-being. Uh, talk to me about the aggregation process. Talk to me about how uh, this, what the implications of this are at the organizational level, even if you can't measure it, because measuring the aggregation process is incredibly complicated. But at least talk to me about this, uh, because I've seen a lot of talks, particularly in the judgment and decision-making community, where people will, uh, you know, they'll basically come to some conclusion. We found that, you know, if you have this uh, nudge or this manipulation, that people will be, you know, absent 20% less. And, you know, the question I always ask is like, how, how many dollars does this mean for the organization? Because usually that's a pretty simple back of the envelope calculation to show that, you know, a lot of these things that are being studied at the micro level, particularly in OB, have massive implications for firm performance. We just often don't take that next step. Uh, what else would I like? I think there's a lot of value in people uh, getting training in different uh, methodologies. Uh, and by training, I don't just mean, you know, sort of learning what things are about, but really trying to understand what are the key principles of methodologies. Um, you know, how do you find causality, for example, outside of experimental settings? Or if you come from strategy, how do you design a, a real, like, good, valid experiment? Because I think a lot of people jump into experiments uh, without recognizing that it's actually really, really hard to design a really, really clean experiment, particularly if you're doing it in the field. Uh, but really sort of diving into that. One thing I've been trying to do is to learn about qualitative research. Um, I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, everybody should have qualitative research in their field. Um, I don't really do, or in their papers, I don't really do qualitative research because I, I don't know anything about it. And I'm terrible about it. Even if I love it, it's people study for years and years to do this. So I think the more we really go in and put effort in understanding what is the process through which, say, OB scholars study one topic while strategy scholars uh, study another, uh, that gives us a lot more respect for the other field, but also allows us to really understand what that field can say and what it can't say. Um, yeah, that's about all I got to say. Uh, I think this is a really exciting topic. I'm really glad you guys put this together. Thank you. Thank you, Lamar, so much. And uh, thank you again, uh, Chris, Giada, and Tanya for sharing your thoughts earlier. So I think we can open it up to a now general discussion, so comments, questions, uh, controversies, uh, disagreements or agreements uh, or, or or your thoughts on the topic. I do have a couple of things, but maybe, I mean, I wanted to first uh, open it up uh, more generally. Please lift your virtual hand uh, and then we'll uh, we'll go in that in that order. I think it's it's also for for you to to learn more if you uh, if 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 you believe that there is something you would benefit from this session is is organized for the benefit of those attending. Don't be shy. All right. So in the meantime. Um, so there's a there's one uh, one question that uh, that came that came from Heather and and something something that Chris uh, somehow uh, already responded to but the, but there's this topic of organizational culture right which potentially is is something that I think both organizational behavior and strategy scholars recognize as as something very important uh, and something potentially consequential I think that it also speaks to what Lamar has just uh, finished with or what I understand uh, in I understood what he was saying, which is also something that I share as my very deep concern of interest, which is this aggregation process where pretty much this I see this as very often 
either we just make it so simple, meaning that we add things up and divide it by the number of people and say, this is the average, uh, I don't know, positive sentiment uh, in an organization, right? We don't know if this is the aggregation process, right? But I see that as, as something that is potentially a, a big roadblock or one of the obstacles that for me, I, I hope that someone solves it or someone really does very influential research. And there is, of course, work on aggregation process, but I think it's something we, we haven't yet figured out. But Culture is potentially this one, uh, right? One one block which which could be a very very important bridge between organizational behavior, but and 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 strategy. But it is a construct that is a, that is a macro construct, and hence an aggregation of individual uh, level um, behavior. So I thought about uh, someone asking it to the panelists: How you think about whether whether this is what is in that in that question mark box and whether you think that this is something because not a low hanging fruit right it's a very high hanging fruit but how big of a fruit is it do you think so i'll i'll jump in on that so my uh, original uh, before i did my dissertation work my work was on culture and i worked with michael morris a psychologist and so part, part of what uh, was interesting for me was jeff pfeffer would always tell me he said, what you're doing with national culture is pointless because it'll all get swamped out in or culture. And so a, a great example of this is uh, Toyota, which is you know Japanese. As a country, you will say, okay, it's more hierarchical, but that model of uh, what's happened on the Toyota floor is because of their the lean production has been a model of democracy and information sharing and transparency. So the, the very just the orc, so, so that would be a classic example of what Jeff has said. Okay, so so even though Japanese culture is one way, here's the organizational culture and look at its power. It's a model for the whole world of of incredible competitive value and advantage. Now, one of the things that I, I think is interesting is cross-cultural research is uh, marked by debates between anthropology and psychology. And so the psychological researchers are very focused on cognitive representations of culture. And so my work was very cognitive. And so it was really, how do people think about culture? And so it is, how it is, how is what are the mental, what, like an idea, it, it's values in the mind, right? And so if you have a particular value, like for example, independence, interdependence, how is it as a knowledge structure in your mind? And that knowledge structure can sometimes recede in importance. Sometimes it can be much stronger as a function of various other uh, situational factors. So it was really a, a decision-making process. Anthropologists will look at this way of studying culture and say, it's exactly the wrong way of studying culture because culture is in lived behavior. And so you need to do that anthropological study, the qualitative data that Lamar was alluding to, to really understand culture and what makes it unique and distinctive. It's not, and, and then there's also this emic versus etic distinction, right? Which is really trying to understand, you know, imposing a set of, you know, hosty dimensions on people versus really understanding what is truly unique. That is not just a common set of assumptions. It's something that our surveys can't even capture until we go in there. So I think it the, 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 the concept of culture, even when you look at the home field, that it comes from, uh, both anthropology and how psychologists have kind of worked uh, with it. Um, it's it's full of of, of debates and uh, in in ways of of looking at it. But um, I, I I think that was um, those are just some of the things that I've observed as I as I looked at this general study of it. And mm -hmm. okay. 
I'll jump in and make a really quick comment on this. Uh, so, you know, I, I use this, I, I don't know if it's like not cool to quote Peter Drucker, but I, I still quote him anyway. You know, this, this famous quote about, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? And people interpret that in a lot of different ways, but, you know, I, this is exactly why I think, you know, it's strategy people, you know, need to understand OB and these micro level mechanisms because there's so many examples of, you know, great strategic ideas that people are like, this will work. And then they never stop and actually think about, well, what do you need to do in order to get, you know, some strategic uh, realignment, uh, you know, successfully implemented. And it turns out you got to get people to do stuff. And, uh, you know, people are, are actually quite complicated. Um, I mean, you know, I was, uh, I managed a production line at Boeing and technically my job was to figure out you know, which parts needed to get produced when so we could deliver planes. And the vast majority of my job was trying to get people to do stuff. And that was complicated. And so I think this has broad implications uh, across, you know, a number of different parts of strategy. But the one that always jumps to mind for me is actually corporate strategy and mergers and acquisitions. Um, you know, why why do mergers and acquisitions fail? Well, there, there are a whole bunch of reasons why they do. But, it, you know, a number of times is because, you know, the investment bankers don't actually look and think, you know, will these two parts of these different companies, when put together, actually work together successfully? And a lot of times culture is the big obstacle for that. Thank you. So maybe in the in the interest of time, uh, we'll, we'll, we can go to the next question. That's actually two or three persons somehow expressed as a similar question. I think it's you are wonderful panelists to tackle that because there's a lot of uh, lot of, a lot of experience in and a lot of frustration accumulated. I think about how to deal with work that is interdisciplinary into review process where you're getting obviously because you're draw, drawing on two different literatures. A reasonable editor will pick reviewers who are who are knowledgeable in both of these disciplines, at least uh, two of them. Uh, but then, what you end up doing is you have to uh, you you either have to deal with orthogonal uh, recommendations, or you have to deal with uh, with one of the reviewers saying, "Well, it's been done in the OB field, or it's been done in the strategy field." So, how do you manage that process? Uh, and and some, if you believe, of course, and if there if there is a, a legitimate uh, really contribution, and 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 you are bridging uh, bridging uh, these two uh, disciplines, if I may. So I'll start with this one uh, because I think it goes back to my idea of the community. So first of all, I think when I'm writing a paper that I believe can be seen at the intersection. I think it's a paper that it's seen at the intersection from strategy scholars. So I doubt that if this paper would go in the hands of Chris, you would think that is anything close to OB. Uh, it is OB-ish for strategy standards, but I doubt that it would actually be seen as something that is OB by an OB scholar. And I think that's important in the sense that you may be bridging across literatures, but ultimately you stay focused in your own domain. And so what you may be doing is that you may be importing 
concepts and ideas from other domains, but ultimately staying, keeping the strong positioning within the strategy. Um, and that would be in terms of thinking, for instance, about um, people in the field who have looked at this phenomenon who are clearly perceived as strategy scholars. So thinking about like, you know, there is there needs to be this idea that ultimately this is your identity and then you are borrowing and bridging potentially, but with a clear understanding of who you are. This, I think, makes the, the, the work of the editor easier in the sense that the editor will not go and pick uh, OB people, uh, but it will go and pick people who have done uh, similar work that say they share something similar compared to what you're doing. And hopefully this is going to be uh, good enough. Now, having said that, as an author in practical terms, I mean, as I was joking with my co-authors before doing the talk earlier, and she was like, yes, go and tell them how we are going to be rejected uh, because we are actually working at the intersection. So I think there is a little bit of truth in that, is that you need to find this magical combination of an editor who understands the, the, the field where you are, and then reviewers who are also willing to, um, you know, not to go with the standard assumptions and potentially be open to alternative methods. So it, it is a little bit of a um, lucky combination, I think, but I, I think to some extent you can manage that luck a bit also in the way in which you position and, and frame the manuscript and clearly the journal that you target. And I, I would add to that, but that those are great points. But I would also say, you know, you you've got to be able to convince both sides. If you if your OB, for example, reviewer really is right that we already know this, we've already studied this to death in the OB field, or vice versa. If you're an OB scholar going to a strategy journal and they go, we already know this, we've studied this to death in our field, that's that's a, a real problem. And so that's something you've really got to think about ahead of time. If you're doing intersectional research, you've got to, it, it's hard, but you got to know that other literature and, and make sure that they haven't already answered this question conclusively. I, I would add here onto this one, which is I, one of the things that was one of our great frustrations in sitting in um, at UFC was that all the behavioral economists would come in with these brand new findings, and they were things that psychologists had done in the 1960s. And they would just simply, it, it's so frustrating to see it. And they would simply sit there and publish this work. And as if it was brand new, we we're discovering all of these phenomena that we we're like, that was in my undergraduate class in, in, in psychology. And so there's something I think that's interesting about this intersection point, which is status and how status is working and how at the intersection, some different things have happened. And so one thing that I find is, uh, you know, Lamar was making points about where he's able to speak to different departments easily or different fields easier than others. So one field that I think has been totally consumed is sociology by economics. So all of the work that Gary Becker started to do was saying, I'm going to use our methods to, to really take over the field that was sociological domains, such as marriage and education and all kinds of other questions. And so those methods of economics really took over that field. Psychology, to his point, had a, has had a much more fruitful conversation with economics. Economics didn't take over psychology. In fact, psychological assumptions and insights uh, were 
were informing the, the 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 whole and transformed, as we know from all the Nobel Prize winners, uh, Richard Thaler and uh, Tversky and uh, Kahneman, all of these have really transformed the field of economics. So I think there's different ways that these intersections work, which is where one field really eats and outdoes the other, and and um, one which is where those assumptions really create um, some more synergistic uh, potential. Yeah, I'll, let me just jump in briefly on that. I, I think that's a really good point. And, you know, frankly, the older I get, the more that I love sociology, because I think sociology is just fascinating. I think really captures things that economics didn't get for, for decades. Um, I think one of the big challenges, and, you know, I know Tomas particularly knows this, is that, you know, I think economics has gotten a lot of traction uh, because of the formalization, you know, the ability to basically model things mathematically, which is, you know, a sort of a common language for everything. Um, as you start diverging from standard assumptions in economics, uh, you, particularly when you start getting into, you know, behavioral theory of the firm, uh, the math gets really complicated, which is, of course, why you see much more computational solutions uh, to org theory models. And so I think that's kind of one of the big challenges is, you know, how do we make sure that we have a common language? I think one thing that's been really cool in psychology recently has been this move to uh, try to take the, I don't know how many, there are 205 different biases that we have uh, in psychology and try to boil them down into common elements to see if we really, you know, need, you know, 205 different, uh, or whether or not there's some sort of underlying smaller structure that allows us to translate one to another and figure out how each are components of one another. So I think there's room for that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you again all for uh, for sharing your, your wisdom and your experiences. Uh, I want to be mindful of the time. We, uh, we were scheduled to speak um, until two minutes ago. Uh, so again, thank you so much. It's been it's been wonderful. Uh, this is going to be available as a recording to all, all of our Academy of Management community. Uh, so share it uh, share it widely. And uh, thank you all. And uh, thank you again, Jada, Chris, Tanya, and Lamar for, and Tomas, for being here. <laughs> and Tomas, thank you very much for organizing this. It was a really interesting session. Thank you for to everyone. Thank you for having us. Bye. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Nice to see everybody. Thanks. Nice to see you. Bye.